1: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 483.
0: Many brands, many businesses want to convey abstract values. Uh, trustworthiness, quality, premiumness. It's fine to have that as an objective, but what you need to do as a copywriter is translate that abstraction into much more concrete terminology.
1: Every day, people make hundreds of choices. Many of these are commercial, a shampoo to pick, how much to spend on a bottle of wine, Whether to renew a subscription, these choices might appear to be freely made, but psychologists have shown that subtle changes in the way products are positioned, promoted, and marketed can radically alter how customers behave. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then making reading a habit is a great way to start. I'm here in an attempt to make books more accessible to you. We do that through a conversation with the book's author. That author this week is a man who goes by the name Richard Shotton. He's written a book called The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. I'm going to ask Richard to share about what marketers need to understand about habit formation and how they might apply that knowledge to successfully persuade, the effectiveness of asking questions in your copy, why it's a mistake to attempt to improve the perception of your intangible attributes like trust or quality head-on, and a lot more. Did you know I host a monthly live stream called Ask Me Anything? Yes, that's right. It's the third Thursday of each month, and each month is themed, and this month's theme is Productivity. I would love for you to join me for this productivity-themed Ask Me Anything happening Thursday, July 20th. It's just one small part of what being a Read to Lead Plus member gets you. In addition to that Ask Me Anything, there's also a monthly guest expert who comes in and does a training of their own. That's happening this Thursday, as a matter of fact. Also productivity-themed, we have monthly challenges. Would you believe this month's challenge is productivity-themed? In fact, it is opportunities to meet and interact with people who share your passion and drive and be able to forge valuable connections. There's a monthly member spotlight where you can have a chance to be featured in front of several hundred members for an entire month, new business book summaries every single week and more. All of that is included in a read to lead plus membership, which is just nine bucks a month. But here's what may be the best part. You can try it free for two weeks for 14 days So if you sign up, say, today, then you'll not only get to participate in our guest expert training happening this Thursday, but also my Ask Me Anything live stream happening next week. So you get a a complete taste of what being a part of the Read to Lead community and a Read to Lead Plus member is all about. To find out more, simply go to jeffbrown.me and sign up for your free trial right now. Again, after 14 days, it's just 9 bucks a month. But make sure you like it first. I give you two weeks to decide. Again, just go to jeffbrown.me to get all the details. jeffbrown.me Richard Shotton specializes in applying behavioral science to marketing. He's worked in the field for 22 years and in 2018 founded the consultancy AstroTen, helping brands like Google, Meta, BrewDog, and Barclays use behavioral science to solve their marketing challenges. He's also the author of the award-winning The Choice Factory from a few years ago. His new book is called The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a Half Psychological Biases That Influence What We Buy. Well, Richard, I am excited to, to have you on the show. I'm so glad that Lucy over at Harriman House reached out to me and suggested this book I got a lot out of it as a guy who creates and, and sells services and products and whatnot online. Uh, so thank you for writing in. And again, thank you for for being here.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's, a, it's a good to be on.
1: I would love to know how you got into this this line of work. I know you've been helping people in the area of, of marketing for a couple of decades anyway. So so tell us a little bit about that, that process for you.
0: It's actually a slightly strange one in that I <laughs> normally feel w- w- with... Uh, general interests you just drift into them but for me there was a very specific moment when i realized that behavioral science could be very useful uh, in marketing and it was 2004 and i was working for an agency and one of our clients was the government and we were trying to encourage people to donate blood Mm. and when i was on that uh, pitch or sorry uh, account i happened to read Do you remember the tipping point by malcolm gladwell Mm-hmm. Well, at the back of that book, he only covers it very briefly, but he talks about a series of 1960s experiments by Latine and Darley into an idea called the bystander effect. It's essentially this idea that if you ask loads of people to come to your aid, you remove a sense of individual responsibility. There's a diffusion of responsibility; mm-hmm. everyone leaves it up to someone else. And I read that just as I was meant to be responding to a brief, and I thought to myself, "Well, look, this is exactly the problem we face. We're going out to everyone in England and saying." Please donate blood. And just as Latina and Dali suggest, most people are ignoring us. So, having read about their study, I went and spoke to the, the creative agency and uh, suggested, well, why don't we try and create more of a sense of personal responsibility? So, rather than going out and saying, blood stocks are low in England, please donate, why don't we tailor that message a little bit more and say things like, blood stocks are low in Brighton or Burnley or Birmingham, please mm-hmm. donate? You're tailoring the message to, on, on a regional basis. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a very crude change to the creative. But even that tiny little tweak, even that uncreative, uh, literal-minded addition, that had a significant effect on performance. I think it was a 10 or 15% improvement we saw over the next few weeks. Mm. And when that happened, it made me realise that I was missing a trick as a marketer, that the expectation was always that we should come up with our own insights into how to persuade people. But Actually, there was this huge body of knowledge, social psychology, behavioral science, whatever you want to call it, where academics have catalogued these really valuable insights into human nature. And since 2004, I've been hooked on this subject and I've spent my career and my time trying to find the experiments that are most relevant for commercial challenges. And then on occasion, running my own studies where I think there are, there are gaps in the, in, the, in the body of literature.
1: And much of what you just talked about, correct me if I'm wrong, is the ultimate prize for the reader in this new book. Uh, Absolutely. I
0: would say the ultimate prize is finding out some of the tactics and strategies you can use if you want to persuade people more effectively. Mm -hmm. So if you're a business person, if you're a marketer, there in the book, I put together a series of ideas based on sound evidence that can help you persuade more effectively.
1: That's, that's the reason to, to read the book, really. Uh, uh, coincidentally, I met the woman that would ultimately become my wife while she was in line giving blood. Many many years ago. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've read a lot of books on habit, as I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this this conversation have, like Power of Habit and and Tiny Habits, and of course the ultimate uh, Atomic Habits and, and other very good book. Yes. Uh, what do What do marketers need to understand, Richard, about habit formation, and how might they apply that knowledge to successfully uh, persuade other people?
0: Yes, I think there's, there's a lot that marketers can apply from this body of knowledge from that psychologists have generated about habits. I think one area is, if you are trying to change people's behavior, habits are your enemy, essentially, as marketer. An mm-hmm. That How do you persuade them to pick your product if the customer in question isn't even weighing up your merits relative to what they're doing? They're just repeating the same behavior again and again. But psychologists don't just... Uh, talk about the problem of habit. They also identify very predictable moments when habits are weakened and people are more open to change. So lots of different moments. The one I talk about quite early on in the book is one from Catherine Miltman at Wharton. Mm. So she's argued that one of the big drives of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with our past selves. And she says, because this is the case, when we enter a new time period, link with our past self is weakened and we become more open to change. So she says, and she calls this the fresh start effect, Mm. we are more open to change our behaviour at the beginning of the year, beginning of the month, beginning of the week, after our birthdays, after public holidays. What I love about behavioural science, though, is she doesn't stop there. Nothing in behavioural science is ever based on logic or authority Mm. alone. She shows remarkable creativity to find different data sets to test her idea. Mm. So she looks at Google search volumes over time for things like quit smoking, start dieting, she looks at gym registration data and attendance data. And she looks at a website called STIC, where people make public pledges to change their behavior. And every one of those data sets shows the same pattern. When you go to the beginning of the year, beginning of the month, after a birthday, you see these pronounced spikes mm. in the volume of people changing their behavior. So if you're a marketer, this is a brilliant study that you could apply. Sound evidence based on peer-reviewed research which shows if you target people at these moments, people are more likely to be open to changing their behavior. And, and they aren't complicated things that cost a lot of money to target. It's, mm. it's simple to target someone on a Monday, not a Friday, or mm-hmm. these days with Facebook data or digital data to target someone just after their birthday. So a powerful insight that's very easy for, for brands and businesses to harness now.
1: One of the things I like about how you lay out the book is we, we get the research, we get the argument for a particular uh, bias, but then some very practical advice on how to apply that new knowledge anywhere from two to five or six different methods we might use. Uh, so, so, again, to me, that makes the book a very practical and actionable one for, for markers, which is one of the reasons why I liked it so much. And there's there's seemingly this, and you even label this, a seeming contradiction early in the book between chapters two and three. Uh, one's called Make It Easy. The other one is Make It yeah. I Believe. Yeah. But when we dig a little deeper, we realize, well, the two methods are really trying to achieve ultimately the same thing, maybe you could describe those two and how really they're getting at the the same thing ultimately, even though they're very different approaches.
0: So so that's that's a great point. Um, Probably the most famous behavioral scientist operating at the moment is a man called Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner back in 2002. And he, in a recent interview, was asked, what is the, the single biggest thing that he'd learned from all his experiments that he'd run? Now, Kahneman is 89. He's been running experiments for 60 years, done an awful lot of experiments. But he answered that question very quickly. He said, very simple, three words, make it easy. His argument is there are two broad ways you can change behavior. You can motivate someone to want to change. So if you're a brand, you could try and make your soft drink or your lager really appealing. And he says that can have an effect, but we tend to overestimate its impact. He says the other way to change behavior is to think about what are the small barriers that are stopping people Behaving the way that you want? What are the tiny bits of friction that are getting in the way? Mm. And his argument is it's often much more effective to focus on removing those barriers to making purchase as easy as possible.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: And his argument is people tend to underestimate that as a a lever. So his argument is many companies have a misprioritization of their budgets. They put too much time, energy, money into motivating people to want to change, too little into making that behavior as easy as possible. Mm. So if that sounds a bit woolly and abstract, practical example, (laughs) um, think of Netflix. They spend billions of dollars on making or buying great content. Mm. But one of the things that's had the biggest effect on viewership is removing friction. It used to be when your um, episode had finished, you had to go and find the remote control, click play to see the next episode. You You had to take two or three seconds of effort To get the next episode what they did was flip that so now the next episode auto plays unless you go to two or three Mm. seconds of effort to find the remote control and (laughs) click stop a seemingly trivial switch uh, of friction but one that has a massive effect Mm. so that's the make it easy principle and there's a few nice little nuances there make it difficult is the next chapter i jump into and at first, there are a couple of experiments that that feel very very contradictory. One of the experiments I discuss in that chapter is a famous one, the IKEA effect, a twenty twelve study by Michael Norton and Dan Ariely, where their experiment they get people to bid on an IKEA box, and sometimes those people are just shown a professionally assembled IKEA box, mm. uh, and they bid. I think it's forty eight cents on average. Other people are shown a um, Ikea box, uh, but they're just given the raw ingredients, is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, the parts. Yeah, that's right, the parts. (laughs) And they have to build the box themselves. And that group, when they bid on the box, they bid 63% more, 78 cents. Norton and Ariely repeat this experiment, a few different variations. And what they essentially conclude is that the more effort we put into something, the more we appreciate it. So at first it sounds like, well, wait a minute, isn't this a glaring contradiction? On one hand, Kahneman's saying, whatever you do, you've got to remove friction, but then you've got Ariely and Norton saying, well, there are occasions when you should add in friction. Mm. And at first it sounds like a a contradiction, but I think those two different biases or experiments have different metrics. If you want to change behaviour, if you want to get people to watch that next programme, removing friction is the right thing to do 99% of the time. But if you want to get someone to appreciate your product more, if you want them to value the the quality of it just slightly more, Mm. that's when it's worth adding in a little bit of friction. So they seem like they're contradictory, but I think often it's because they are addressing different goals. Mm. So what you need to do as a, a business person or as a marketer is of all the experiments and biases out there, make sure you are matching the right insight from behavioral science to the right problem. And I think that's often, that's often the skill.
1: Uh, when I was in radio many years ago, I spent 26 years in broadcasting. Yeah. And, and I remember someone, some consultant somewhere saying early in my career, don't ask questions in your ad copy. Your listener cannot answer you. <laughs> So I avoided for decades asking questions in my ad copy. Uh, talk about the, the uh, I think it's called the generation effect, uh, specifically what psychologists believe about the effectiveness of, yeah. of asking questions in things like ad, your yes. ad copy.
0: So so the, the, the original work into the generation effect is, is quite old. It was 1974, I think. So um, Graf and Slameka, two Canadian
1: psychologists, did careful, careful. One. I was born in the 60s when
0: you said that. <laughs> Okay, sorry. <yeah>. sorry. <laughs> I put it in 1975, so I don't know why I'm pretending 1974 is quite so long ago. That is <laughs> um, And what they did basically give people long lists of words. know, you might see cat, dog, fish, weasel. I might see C blank T, D O blank. And when the two groups are asked to recall as much as they can, the group who had to generate the answer themselves They remember, I think it's of the order of, don't quote me on this, but 15%-ish more. Hmm. Now, their argument was, if people have to put a little bit of effort into generating them arts themselves, it's that little bit of grit that makes the information and data more memorable. So for copywriters and marketers, that's quite interesting, because what it suggests is you want to make your copy easy enough to understand that people want to engage but not so easy that it just washes over them. So a classic example of someone who's got that balance brilliantly right was the Economist ads, the classic Economist ads, where it said, uh, I don't read The Economist, management trainee, age 42. So written by David Abbott back in the 80s, probably. And it's, it's, it's brilliant because he doesn't go out and say directly, if you don't read The Economist, you'll be a failure. What he does is pose it a little puzzle that, he, that the reader resolves and not only do they get a frisson of excitement from the success of resolving it, the generation effect suggests it will be more memorable. Mm. So that's the kind of basic underlying idea of the generation effect. You specifically mentioned that point about questions. And I think this is, is very related. There is a really interesting 2004 study from Alu at the University of Kansas where he shows people ads for trainers. So it's a fictitious brand called Avanti Trainers. And people get the same ad Basically, same ad, but some people see a claim such as "avanti trainers uh, reduce the risk of arthritis." Others see the claim "did you know avanti trainers reduce the risk of arthritis?" And when people are later questioned about their uh, purchase intent, their um, the likability of these these trainers, the people who had the question posed rate the trainer about fourteen percent higher.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, I think some of that is maybe that the message is more memorable, as Graf and would suggest. But I think another part of it is, frankly, people don't like to be told what to think, told what to do.
1: That, <laughs> You're giving them some agency with the question, right? Exactly.
0: And there's a, there's a few studies which suggest that Yeah, trying to retain that sense of agency is, is really important, because it's a big driver of behavior. So what exactly, as you say, with the question... You're steering people towards the answer, but you're not shoving it down their throats. (laughs) And it's that delicate balance that guides people to the answer you want, but without removing their sense of agency. That's the sweet spot. Mm. So I think here you're moving from maybe behavioral science as a science to a bit of an art. There are experiments that suggest you need this balance, but I think getting the right guidance versus um, you know, agency being left up to the, to the viewer, that's, that's a real skill.
1: Well, sticking uh, with this sort of line of, of, of copy, uh, and I'm writing copy all the time in my business, how might we uh, get ourselves in trouble with the use of abstract language Ooh. versus more concrete terminology that, yeah. we, that we could use?
0: So that's probably my favorite study in the book. <laughs> um, it's another Canadian study, uh, Ian Begg. Uh, university of Western ontario done back in 1972 and he reads out a list of 22 word phrases to people now some of those phrases are what he calls abstract phrases these are intangibles that you can't picture stuff like um, basic fact other words are what he calls concrete phrases things like square door or white horse these are tangible physical items that you can visualize he reads out the list of words to participants Later on, he asked people to recall as much as they can. And his key finding is people remember 9% of the abstract phrases, but 36% of the concrete phrases. So it's a huge fourfold difference. Now, his argument is vision is the most powerful of our senses. So if you use words and language that people can picture in their mind, then that statement will be very sticky. But if you use language that's very abstract, that can't be visualized, it will be very forgettable. So the key point here is many brands, many businesses want to convey abstract values, uh, trustworthiness, quality, premiumness. It's fine to have that as an objective, but what you need to do as a copywriter is translate that abstraction into much more concrete terminology.
1: Mm.
0: Now, if ironically that all sounds a bit abstract, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, Think back to the early 2000s and the world of MP3 players. Every MP3 player wanted to convey the benefit of memory. What 99% of them did, though, was convey it in abstract language, uh, 128 megabytes of memory. That's poor advertising, very, very forgettable. What Apple did, though, was something very different. Even though they had the same abstract objective of memory, they translated that into very concrete, visualizable language. They talked about a 1,000 songs in your pocket. You can picture a pocket, you can imagine a song. That makes it sticky, that makes it memorable. So that's what more brands need to do. Find have the abstract objective, but think about the language you use that translates into something more visual.
1: Does this relate at all to the concept of the the, um, halo effect? I think it is. The mistake is to attempt to improve the perception of our intangible attributes like trust or quality that you mentioned head on.
0: Yeah, yes. I, th- I, th- I think you're. I think you're right. So the, the halo effect is is basically the idea that if you, as a person, and the original research was done on people, if you, as a person or a product, have one really strong attribute, let's say amazing, good looking, or wonderfully funny, mm-hmm. what people tend to do is their perception of you is dominated by that attribute, and unrelated characteristics are also seen as positive. So if you're Believed to be really beautiful, people will think you're more honest or you're, you're, you're funnier. One powerful attribute shifts people's perception in other areas. So, bringing back that back, back to your point about focusing on tangibles, not intangibles, if you're a brand, going out and saying, trust me, I'm, it I'm, uh, is a very hard thing to actually prove. And if you can't prove it, pe- people are skeptical. Everyone knows that a brand has a vested interest to put a positive spin on the truth. So, if you make an unfalsifiable claim, like that you're trustworthy, you will have a skeptical audience. So paradoxically, one way to boost your sense of trustworthiness is to find an attribute that you can categorically indisputably mm. prove. So you go out in your ad and you are wonderfully funny. <laughs> That's something you can you can actually be funny. It's indisputable. You can get people to chuckle. They'll believe you're funny. And what the halo effect suggests is that other, maybe more important attributes will also improve at the same time. So, so I think you're right. There is a probably slightly counterintuitive link between the two, two, two areas.
1: Yeah, I had a question. I had that question sort of queued up for, for later in our chat. But as you were mm. talking and mentioning things like trust and other you know, things, I thought, well, you know, if there's a more of a connection there than I realized.
0: Yeah. No, no, it's not something I'd, kind of, I'd put together necessarily. And the other area that I hadn't thought about when I wrote the book, and this is the beautiful thing about behavioural science, it's such a rich field, you always can learn more and find out more, mm. is I came across some work that analysed British ads. And one of the key findings was that long-term campaigns that have what they call a fluent device, so It's a slightly complicated word for a simple thing, which is a a character or a mascot who's key to the... Mm. Drama of the ad campaigns that have that tend to be much more successful. So think about the tiger and the tank for so or um, uh, the Geico Gecko. And I wonder if maybe the psychological explanation for that is for Geico Gecko. It's very hard to convey that you are um, I don't know, trustworthy or cost effective or, or, or good value. know, people will struggle to remember that. But if you can get your character of the Gecko mm. that 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 icon to embody those ideas, well. It's easy to remember a bright green talking gecko, so, <laughs> so I think that you know there are lots of links between these um, biases that that, mm. that that can have practical
1: outcomes for many businesses, uh, and I, I think again, especially for those of us creating products and services online, uh, speaking for myself at least, pricing is always
0: Ooh, yes. a
1: struggle. What are some of the strategies the book addresses with, with regard to pricing? I know there's a two, two and a half chapters or so. Yeah. Yes. Never talk about that.
0: Yeah, well, there's the, uh, I like the fact that you mentioned there's a half chapter.
1: So the, uh, <laughs>
0: the, the, the kind of subtitle of the book is the 16 and a half principles for behavioral science that influence what you buy. Now, the half chapter is all about the power of precision. Mm. And one of my favorite experiments uh, comes from the power of pre- about the power of precise prices so it's reasonably recent data four or five years ago but uber have been running um experiments behind the scenes so they have a big team of behavioral scientists and one of the things they've tested is precise pricing so they randomize people to different groups you might see a surge price for 2x I see a surge price for 2.1x. What Uber have shown from their data is that, surprisingly, I would be the person more likely to accept the ride. We're more likely to take the 2.1x price than the 2x price. The argument goes that if you see a suspiciously round price, someone says they're going to fix your bathroom for $1,000 or your your taxi driver is going to double the price because it's busy, you assume that that number has been plucked out of the air and that if it's just been... Generated on the flights, probably to the benefit of the the brand or the salesperson. But if that I can't remember what I said pl- was it plumber or, or a bathroom designer? If they yeah, say it's going to cost one thousand and eleven dollars, well, you think okay, they must have accurately worked out the price and barely put on any margin at all. Mm. So it's a really it's a lovely study because it's very robust, a huge sample size. People didn't even know they were an experiment. Very realistic setting of these taxi journeys. And it has a very practical application. You've got this wonderfully rare situation as a brand where you can increase your price. If you ever have a round price, you can go from $100 to $103. And not only will you have a greater margin, you'll be seen to be uh, better value. So that's probably the simplest pricing tactic in the book that you can go out tomorrow and, and test. <laughs> I,
1: I certainly will. I I did a launch recently. Yeah. Uh, I, you, know, you didn't you didn't talk about this specifically, I don't think. But I did a launch recently where in, instead of offering three options, I offered one. And I always look back on should I should I have offered three? Should I have should yeah. I have done the thing that drives them to the middle option? Yes. <laughs> the, yeah. the extreme. Yeah. Uh, extreme subversion. Yeah. Extremes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um. The other way I've started to use that precision bias is sometimes do training. And yet I've found if you say to Bill, let's have a five-minute break, what you're essentially saying to people is let's just have a short break. Some people will come back after three minutes, some five, some ten. It's, it's, it's too vague a number. But if you say let's have a seven-minute break and be back at one13 Suddenly, people feel, well, there must be a reason that we need to be back at this very precise time. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, there there are lots of different ways you can apply the same principle. But if you want to get people to think it's a a good value price, if you want them to come back on time, or you want them to take seriously your claim and believe it's accurate, use the power of precision.
1: Mm. Um, Before we uh, jumped on and started the interview, uh, we talked a little bit about this. Yours is, I think, the third book I've read this year that references uh, the Christopher Bryan study, Stanford University, I think in 2011. Yes. About noun use, again, getting into sort of the the idea of copywriting here, nouns being better than verbs. uh, If you want to change behavior, Why, why is that exactly?
0: Yeah. Well, why there are three books, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> I think it's just a weird coincidence because I read a brilliant book by Jonah Berg called Magic Words, mm. uh, which came out a month or two after The Illusion of Choice. So both were being written essentially at the same time, and both of them reference what is a twelve-year-old <laughs> study. So I think I think there's an element of um, uh, a, a coincidence there, yeah. but it is a really interesting study. What, what what Brian does, and there's a few other studies that show the same principles. It's not a, a rogue one-off. He is. Uses um, well, goes up to people first of all and says, "How important is you to to vote at the upcoming election?" Other people he says, "How important is it to be a voter?" He then looks at publicly available data to see whether or not people go out and, and, and vote, and he finds that when the noun form is used, "How important is it to be a voter?" People are more likely to follow through than when the verb form was used. And the broad argument here is verbs are things we do, nouns are things we are. So mm. it's very different insinuation for me to go out and say, I'm a runner versus I run. Yeah. Being a runner makes it sound like this is a really important part of my identity. Mm. And once you talk about something that's being important to your identity, then one of the big drives of human behaviour is this desire to be consistent with your past self. So if I said it's important to vote, not to do it is one thing. If I've said it's important to be a voter, it feels more of a transgression not to follow through. Mm. Now that idea you can apply in lots of different circumstances. So one commercial project I've worked on, we were trying to get people to renew their subscriptions. And the tiny little test that we did with a positive result was rather than go out and say, thank you for subscribing. We changed the line in the letter to say, thank you for being a subscriber. A very, very small tweak. No extra cost to the brand, but a nice little uplift in, um, in, in, in conversion. So so all these studies can be applied. It's just matching that experiment to the right challenge.
1: I remember Jonah's book being one of the other books where I had seen this study. And, and I'm racking my brain trying to remember what the what the third book mm. was, but I, I can't remember it. But anyway, uh, apparently we need to be paying attention to the study. And I think even James Clear, uh, his book back from 2018, Atomic Habit, he doesn't reference the study, at least I don't think he does. But he does talk about how if if we lean into what we want to be versus what we want to do that we're much more likely to lean into that habit yeah. long-term.
0: Yes, exactly the same principle. And it's, uh, it's great you mentioned that book. I, I always think if people want a single book to read around the topic of habits, I, I do think that his book, Atomic Habits, is probably the best. I think what's wonderful about it is it's such a wide-ranging book on all sorts of different research hmm. and his ability to wrap the uh, experiments and studies up in wonderful stories is, 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 is really
1: wonderful you know he sold uh, 10 million copies richard he doesn't need to sell any more <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah yeah we can edit that <laughs>
1: <laughs> no in all seriousness i did yeah. a i did an episode yeah. I, I had james on back in 2015 yeah. when it came out but i did an episode earlier this year where i did a an audio summary Episode of the book in honor of him surpassing that that ten million mark. I think he's a great guy. He's he's written yeah, as you said, a fantastic book. How might we apply perceptions of fairness
0: uh, to prompt behavior? (laughs) So, so if the concreteness study was my favorite from the book, I think some of the studies around fairness or some of the ones that surprised me the most. So, my favorite study that I mention is a, a study from Sally Blount, who I think at the time was at the University of Chicago. And it is run on students, but I think why will become clear. She goes up to people when they've arrived at university and there's a little bit of subterfuge. She invents a psychology experiment. She essentially says, will you come to my lab tomorrow and do half an hour of, say, maths puzzles? And if you do, I will pay you $7. Now, I think the study was mid-90s. So $7 was quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Students need that cash. 72% of them say yes. Yes. I'll come and do it. Then she goes up to another group of people and gives them the same basic offer. Um, 30 minutes of math puzzles, come to my lab tomorrow. But this time she says, I'll pay you $8. But, and this is the little white lie, I'm really sorry. I was paying people $10 earlier, but we've run out of cash. We can only give you eight. Now, an economist would say what she was paying people earlier is irrelevant. What you should do is weigh up the $8 versus the half hour of effort. And because it's a larger sum, more people should find it of a value and want to want to want to get that cash. In theory, right? <laughs> in theory, exactly, in theory. But <laughs> the behavioral scientists aren't interested in theories, they're interested <laughs> in what actually motivates people. Yeah. And in that setup, it's 54% of people who yeah. accept the offer. So you've got this 25% decline in, in, in acceptance. So Blount's argument is we're not just interested in maximizing our financial benefit in an absolute sense we're interested in fairness we want to make sure that we are getting relatively well paid now that to me is is fascinating because it suggests that people will turn down profitable opportunities in britain we would say well you'll cut your nose off to spite your face Mm. if you think uh, you've been treated unfairly so as a brand you've got a couple of opportunities here can you reframe your competition's behavior as being unfair And if you can, you will anger people enough maybe to walk away from that brand and come to you. Or maybe more tactically, and this is a mistake that I think you see again and again and again, is make sure that you're not transgressing these principles of fairness. Mm. So think about most e-commerce sites. What you normally do is you find a pair of trainers, say, for $100. You're completely happy with them. You put them in your basket. You're just about to click the buy button. And if you look up a centimetre or two, what you normally see is a giant box that says add discount code. In my opinion, that transgresses these fairness norms. What you're essentially going out and saying to those potential purchasers is you're paying $100, but there are these people out there who are getting them for $80 or $90. <laughs> that enrages people. They were completely happy to buy, now they think it's unfair, and they will either leave their basket or they'll mm. go out and look for discount code and probably never come back. Mm. So you can take this academic finding from 25 years ago and you can apply it to your e-commerce site today. So you could either get rid of the box entirely or make the box really recessive, maybe turn it into a really thin little link with a little uh, faint bit of font saying, apply discount code here. So only people are really looking for it, spot it. Or you could um, could pre-fill that box with 1% off and if, of course, someone has a discount code, they could overtype it and put in their 20% off or 30% off. But no one knows that's what's happening yet. That people are just happy they've got their 1%. Mm. So
1: you,
0: you, you can take these principles and apply them in, in lots of different, very practical ways. Mm.
1: Now, one of the things we didn't uh, touch on a great deal, which to me gets at the heart of a lot of this, is that us as individ- we as individuals, we think we know what motivates us, but we're often wrong about that. We don't act in the way we think we would based on how yes. those variables you're talking about often change.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great point to discuss because there is a real danger that someone out tonight might be listening to us talk and think, okay, well, that study about precision is interesting or that study about fairness is interesting. Mm. And they might go and ask a potential customer directly, you know, w- which would you prefer, $100 as a bill or $103? The problem is the person who's asked that question will behave in a fully considered logical, rational way when they're being questioned Mm. and they'll say, well, of course I'd prefer to pay the lower amount, the round amount. There is a idea from um, a psychologist at the university of Virginia called Timothy Wilson. He says, we are strangers to ourselves. Mm. So the idea is people don't know their own motivations. So if you survey them, if you put them in a focus group and ask them why they buy trainers or beer or go on holiday, They'll give you lots of answers, but many of them will be deeply misleading. What you should do instead is the tactic that all the psychologists I've mentioned so far have done run these simple field experiments, set up two different conditions, keep all the variables the same between the two conditions apart from one, and then any difference in performance or behavior you can attribute back to that single change variable. So, in the case of Sally Blount, she gets similar people. Mm. Uh, same request for half an hour of their time, uh, same time at a lab, same place. It's only the amount of money that changes. It's only the uh, comparison figure that changes. And if you do that test versus control approach and you test some of these underlying biases, you use your website as a a lab essentially, or use your stores as an experimental area, that's when you see the real power of these biases.
1: Mm. Fascinating stuff. Um, before I move to a couple of questions, Richard, that are not directly related to your book, what maybe haven't I asked that you want to make sure we we know about?
0: I think maybe the importance of people testing some of these ideas for themselves. Mm. That you don't have to think that a bias is either there to be used or dismissed. Mm. There is a a third option, which is if you ever find a study which you think is interesting but not categorically proven. Maybe it was done 50 years ago. Maybe the sample wasn't ideal. Maybe it was done in such a a different context, you can't think it's relevant. Well, all these experiments are in the public domain, all the methodologies are out there. You can easily rerun them. So one of the bits I discuss in the book is, I love that experiment by Ian Begg about concrete versus abstract. But what I haven't mentioned so far is he did that 51 years ago, he used, frankly, a weird mix of words. I think muscular gentleman was one, uh, flaming forest was another, not exactly very commercial. And he did it on a very small student sample. So arguably not representative. Mm. So when I read about his study, I thought it was an interesting idea, but I didn't think he'd proven it. So I re-ran his study with a friend called Mike Traham, and we did a much larger sample, 400 plus, uh, nationally representative groups. There was no problem about these being students. And we changed the words. They were much more commercially focused. Uh, Things like fast car or happy hens were some of the concrete words. Trusted provenance, I think, might have been one of the abstract ones. And not only did we find that there was the large effect that they had identified, we actually found it was even larger. Mm. uh, When we tweaked the experiment to our satisfaction, we saw a tenfold increase in in memorability, concrete versus abstract. Mm. So, Think about these studies sometimes if you ever come across one where it's not right for your coffee brand or your trainer brand. Why not use the behavioral science experiments as fodder for your next research program?
1: You've mentioned Kahneman, Berger, Gladwell, maybe a few others. Yeah. Um, Over the course of your career, what are the books you've read that have had the biggest impact on you? Would you say? Uh,
0: Yeah, I think... Uh, Influenced by Robert Cialdini is probably the most influential. I think it was some of his work where I realised that it wasn't just a one-off study about blood donation; that there were real commercial applications. And the great thing about influence is it gives you a simple framework for applying these experiments. He identifies what he thinks the six key principles of persuasion, so six themes consistency, commitment, authority, likability, reciprocity, and social proof. That certainly got me yeah, hooked, hooked on the subject. So that's so that been a very influential book.
1: Well, one of the things that I do in my spare time is I teach a, a cohort called Note-Making Mastery, and it, it makes this distinction between note-making and note-taking.
0: Ooh, yeah.
1: And as someone who, like yourself, who's an author who does uh, quite a bit of, especially in your field, research, um, I often like to ask, What methods or tools or strategies do you use when you are reading or studying or consuming content from others to make sure that that stuff doesn't fall through the cracks, that you remember what you want to remember, you know where to find it later, you you massage it and add your own thoughts and insights to it, such that when it comes time to sit down and create a book like this, you're not starting with a blank page or a blank screen.
0: So a couple of things I do when I'm reading, give yourself, I think, time to to stop and pause often it's reflecting just after you've read about an experiment that mm. helps you get to the implications i'm a big fan of underlining and uh, <laughs> highlighting and turning over pages so i like a physical book rather than a digital one but maybe the, the single biggest thing i found is i used to start off by writing blogs or little articles for 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 trade magazines and i found it was the act of writing that made me understand what I actually thought, if if that doesn't sound too strange. I do think if you put a presentation together, you can often have logical gaps that you kind of gloss over with a bit of showmanship or or theatre. If you write down your flow of an argument, the gaps are glaringly obvious. Mm. So I I do think one of the simplest things to make sure that you've generally taken as much as you can from a book or you've turned it to practical for your job is to write down on a side of A4 what you think of the um, experiment, what it is and how you're going to use it, and actively write it down in full sentences rather than put it together in a PowerPoint presentation. That, for me, is a way of making sure I actually know what I'm talking about rather than I've fooled myself uh, by putting a few pretty pictures in in a line that I know what I'm talking about.
1: I love that distinction. Uh, no one's ever shared advice quite like that before. Uh, that's oh, something good. that when this, yeah. when this episode is released, I'm, I'm going to be sitting down taking notes on my own podcast because ah. I want to make sure I, <laughs> I remember that one for sure. Uh, well, uh, Richard's book, again, is called The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. I loved it. Read it in a day. It's uh, 192 taught, uh, well-written pages. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. I really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up on this episode, find out more about Richard, maybe even connect with him online and dig into the resources and links we talked about, it's all on the show notes page for this episode that can be found at com slash 483 for episode 483. This weekend, July 16th, officially marks the 10th anniversary, or is it birthday? I'm not sure which way to go on that, of the Read to Lead podcast. 10 years ago this we can. If you've been impacted by the podcast in some small way, I'd love to hear about it. Jeff at Read to Lead is the easiest way to reach me. And I hope you'll consider joining us inside the Read to Lead community by becoming a Read to Lead Plus member. It's just nine bucks a month, and you can even try it to see if you'll like it free for two solid weeks. To find out more, go to JeffBrown.com me next week on the show as we celebrate our 10th birthday or anniversary or whatever this thing is i welcome my friend david burkus to the show he's been on a couple of times before we'll be chatting about his brand new book called best team ever the surprising science of high performing teams again that's next time on the read to lead podcast that does it for this week hope to see you next time until then remember leaders read and readers lead